Welcome to the first episode of the Siwan Project, a series exploring the work of the orchestra created by Yun Balke. This podcast is a companion piece to their third studio album, Hafler, released in April 2022. Siwan celebrates coexistence and cooperation. It's inspired by the legends and poetry of Al-Andalus, the Muslim-ruled area of the Iberian Peninsula, from 711 AD until 1492. That year saw the conclusion of the Reconquista, a centuries-long campaign by Christian states aimed at recapturing what now forms modern Spain and parts of Portugal. In this first episode, we'll learn some of the rich history that so inspired the orchestra and what makes the story of Al-Andalus such a captivating one. Here's who we're going to hear from. I'm Professor Amira Benison. I work at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Middle Eastern Studies and I'm Professor in the History and Culture of the Maghreb, particularly the Medieval Maghreb, and I work on Morocco and Islamic Spain for my research. My name is Jose Cristobal Carvajal López, I'm a Spanish archaeologist and I specialise in Islamic archaeology. My name is Yun Balke, I'm a musician, composer, creator and leader of the Siwan Project. The Muslim period in the Iberian Peninsula extended for 800 years. Many indigenous people of the peninsula converted to Islam and became part of the culture there. A lot of that culture was focused on the capital city during the 9th and then the 10th centuries in particular, in which Córdoba was a real powerhouse of scientific and cultural knowledge. That knowledge and culture disseminated through the peninsula. There are many other cities that had glittering courts and highly educated Muslim, Jewish and Christian elites, places like Saragossa, Toledo, Seville and ultimately Granada. This period ended in 1492 with the fall of the city of Granada to the Christian kings Ferdinand and Isabella, but the territorial reach of Muslim powers had been reducing gradually through the centuries. So there are quite extreme fluctuations in how much territory was controlled by Muslim powers, but a third to two thirds of the peninsula was under Muslim rule for a very considerable period. Before we dive into the history of Al-Andalus, Yun tells us about what drew him to this particular period. Well, the background story of Siwan 
is that I was commissioned to make kind of a musical project for um, the celebration of a club in Oslo called Cosmopolit, which is run by a Moroccan guy who's called Miloud Gidark. I had known him for a long time. He's kind of a very passionate music lover and he sort of devoted his life to presenting world music in, in Norway. So I wanted to make a kind of a homage to him and his story in a way. So naturally I was pointing my nose towards Morocco. In that research I came across Amina Alaoui who sounded to me like a very open-minded musician, but still rooted deeply within the Garnati music, which was the music of Al-Andalus. So from that point, I started to, to research into this Andalusian music and knowing nothing about it. And then, of course, that led to uh, the discovery of the history of Al-Andalus. That was a kind of an eye-opener towards something that seemed incredible that uh, that we didn't know anything about this history i had never learned anything about it in, in school and it's a really important period in, uh, in european history so from that point i started reading and buying all these books uh, and, um, i mean the, there were connections to the norwegian vikings they traveled down there tried to raid the, the muslim kingdoms uh, there and without much luck but uh, there are so many side stories to the history of al-andalus that uh, I'm, I'm still <laughs> researching and searching so that's what inspired yun and in turn has shaped the orchestra's identity but what about archaeologists and historians how was their interest in Al-Andalus developed? By the 18th century or so, there were a lot of people who were very interested in, in trying to understand this Islamic influence in Spain. And they saw it, in many cases, in very positive terms. They saw the Islamic past of Spain as a sort of golden age, like the Roman past, a period where the creation of culture was very strong and very important for the Spanish identity. Just after the dictatorship of Franco's ended and the Spanish democracy started, there was a very important generation of academic scholars who turned to archaeology to understand what was going on in Al-Andalus because they were very aware of this importance of uh, Islamic heritage within Spanish identity. They wanted to understand it and they realized that they didn't have enough information with the text uh, the written sources that were studied at the moment. So, so they turned to archaeology and that generated a landscape of archaeological studies that is very much the one in which I grew up and very much the one that uh, shapes Spanish medieval archaeology and Spanish Islamic archaeology nowadays. And how well known is Al-Andalus to the general public? Certainly talking to British audiences or Western audiences more generally, there is quite a lot of ignorance about the fact that there was a Muslim period in what's now Spain and Portugal, or even Sicily, to speak of another similar area. I think it's quite a well-kept secret, and I think uh, a lot of people are unaware of the scientific and cultural achievements of that period and how uh, the Iberian Peninsula and Sicily acted as sort of gateways of culture and knowledge into 12th century Latin Christendom. 
So I think that's a bit of a surprise to many people. Of course, it's not a surprise when I'm working with people from the Middle East or Muslims who are much more aware of that history and interested in it from a starting point. Even if we're aware of a period of Muslim rule that spans centuries, we're usually surprised when we learn more about it. They were often also pretty green, which is something we often don't think about. You know, particularly if you have stereotypes of the, you know, the Medina, if you've been on a holiday to Marrakesh or Cairo and you think of it as all grimy, dirty, narrow little alleyways. But that a lot of geographers or travellers who wandered through the medieval Islamic world comment instead on green space, uh, you know, that houses had gardens, that mosque courtyards might be planted, that there were some lovely you know, orchards enclosed within the city walls or market gardens or allotment-type spaces. So it's probably quite a bit greener than we realise often. So we know now that Al-Andalus was this vast green territory where Christians and Jews lived alongside as much as under Muslims. How did this area fare in comparison to the rest of the continent? In general terms, the material culture of Al-Andalus was probably richer, more prosperous, and better connected to the wider world than your average medieval European culture. That doesn't mean, of course, that there was no variety and that you could not find parts in European countries that were probably far better off than parts in Al-Andalus. But on average, I think it's safe to say that the people in Al-Andalus live more richer, more prosperous lives than people in other parts of Europe. Before looking at the everyday life of the people of Al-Andalus, Dr Amira Benison paints us a picture of the Iberian Peninsula in the years before Al-Andalus came into existence. The Iberian Peninsula was the site of a Visigothic kingdom before the Muslim conquests in the early 8th century. That Visigothic kingdom had been there for several hundred years. It was a, a Catholic kingdom It was built on the foundations of the Roman period in the Iberian Peninsula, but the Visigoths were considered one of the barbarian kingdoms, if you like, that replaced the Roman Empire. It was quite centralised. It was quite sophisticated. Its main cities were Toledo, which was the political capital, and Seville, which was an important religious and cultural capital. Life there was not bad necessarily. Government was minimal, as in most areas in the early Middle Ages. One feature that is often noted is that life was not particularly good for the Jewish minority, that they they had been persecuted in a number of different decrees. And this may have been one of the reasons they seem to have been quite sympathetic to the arrival of Muslims and not, not opposed to the replacement of Visigothic by Muslim power. So how exactly did Al-Andalus come into being? It's quite difficult to talk about the conquests accurately or to even understand what terminology we should use because Islam was a very new religion. If you think of the lifetime of the Prophet from being from 570 to 632, the conquest of North Africa commenced in about 642, so about 10 years after the death of the Prophet in Medina, in Arabia. Then 
You have this sort of rolling out of raiding and conquests, gradually bringing North Africa under Muslim rule. As that rolls out, more and more individuals within the army are indigenous North Africans, what we call Berbers, but a group today in Mazigan. So we have this incorporation of local people, some of whom have converted to Islam, but we don't really know what that means because the religion is so new. What do people actually know about it? You know, is it a kind of nominal, okay, I subscribe to your new religion, let's move on? <laughs> or is it a, a more deeper, fuller understanding? I mean, Islam as we know it today did not exist. It was still very rudimentary, but it was probably kind of a, almost, if you like, a soundbite without wanting to trivialise it. You know, you know, there is no God but God. That's sort of it. <laughs> and Muhammad is the prophet of God. So a very sort of simple, basic message that could be inspiring, but not a fully-fledged religion. So when we talk about it being an Arab conquest of the Iberian Peninsula or a Muslim conquest, in a way we don't really know what that meant at the time. And in fact, it seems that by the time the armies had reached the Strait of Gibraltar, their composition was largely indigenous North African. And the decision to cross the Strait of Gibraltar, which was a campaign which was led by Tariq ibn Ziyad, who gave his name to Gibraltar, which is Jabal Tariq, or the mountain of Tariq, the composition of that army was very much North African. And it was probably inspired by an older pattern of raiding by North African tribes. It's likely that if there had been a pattern of raiding into the Visigothic kingdom before the Islamic conquest, that crossing was probably inspired by local people who joined the Muslim armies and were aware of the wealth of the kingdom and were interested in sort of perpetuating the pattern of raiding, collecting booty that already existed. It so happened that when they arrived, they appear not to have really known what to do, but the Visigothic king was alerted to their presence and sort of moved south. Unfortunately, he was in the north, so it took him a bit of time. And when he arrived, he was actually defeated in battle, possibly because he was a relatively new king and he had some rivals within the Visigothic nobility, that the family of the king before him, the family of somebody called Witiza, and we're talking about King Roderick here. And he was defeated, apparently killed, because the faction supporting the family of Witiza did not assist him at that battle. Possibly they gave the Muslim side some helpful intelligence. Possibly they just didn't join the battle. But in any case, he lost the battle. And that seems to have led to a fairly rapid collapse of the Visigothic monarchical structure, which seems to have quite surprise the Muslims. They seem to have been like, oh, gosh. <laughs> suddenly there's a kingdom, yeah, whoopee, there's a kingdom for the taking. So they actually proceeded quite cautiously towards Visigothic cities further inland, like Cordoba and then Toledo. But by the time they reached those cities, it seems that their takeover of the Visigothic kingdom was sort of gradually becoming a fait accompli, if you like. Uh, so slightly accidental, but 
written up later in Arabic sources very much as, you know, the unfurling of God's vision for history, for the, the success of Islam as a religion, for the, the victory of its armies. So it sort, of, it sort of gains a kind of inevitable tone in later Arabic sources, but reading between the lines, one suspects that it was a little bit more accidental and a series of sort of chances and battles which went a particular way and enabled Muslims to gain control of a number of significant points in the peninsula and establish themselves there. The conquest had a profound impact on the political, religious, social and cultural fabric of this area of the Iberian Peninsula. But this wasn't one-sided, and neither was it achieved overnight. Jose explains. So we can either see a wave of people invading a territory, or we can see that there is a, an inner development of technologies by indigenous people. But actually, the truth is that what we are seeing in Al-Andalus is that there is a little bit of both. We know that there were immigrant groups arriving. We don't know how many of them there were. Some people say there were very few. Some people say there were a lot more. But we don't have any safe numbers on that. What we can tell is that they were very influential. Because as soon as these immigrant groups started arriving we have a lot of new developments. So one thing that we know for sure is that we have a complete change in the political forms of organization. So we go from the Visigothic state, which was a very European-based form of organization, very much based in Germanic monarchy, in forms that were happening all over Europe. And then suddenly we have a different kind of state where we have groups that claim to be of Arab lineage in the power and they develop forms of political structure that are deeply linked to the caliphate, first in Damascus, then in Baghdad, etc. So we know that there's these big changes. Conquest is always like, I mean, even I'll say if you look at later empires, the British Empire or the French Empire, I mean, it's, it's just the starting point. Muslims captured and held key towns, but it took hundreds of years for Arab Islamic culture to percolate through entire urban populations and down to rural areas. I think one has to assume that for quite some time, rural populations were largely untouched by the whole affair. It made very little difference to them. And this would be normal in the period To get a better sense of the changes that took place over so long a period of time, Jose argues that actually we have to look at the smaller picture. Archaeologists and I think historians should look at the lower scales and try to understand what is happening in the lower scales because change can come in very different ways and it can have very different causes and the agents could be completely different in each case. In Iberia, Jose's special area of interest is the region including and surrounding Granada, where he grew up. He focuses on the early Islamic period, just after the Muslims arrived, and his work is targeted at understanding how this new set of rulers went about creating new forms of political organisation. And that was by no means a simple matter. What I'm finding out is that there is an incredible mixture of forms and of ways in which people contacted with each other. So we are usually very limited by our terminology and we're usually very limited by our own ideas when we try to analyze an incredible complex landscape as this. 
because we have people coming out there are Muslims, we have people coming in that are Arabs, we have people coming in that are Berbers, but then we have also Christian groups and we have also Jewish and we don't know how these people interact. We assume that just because someone is Muslim and some other person is Christian, they are going to be confronted to each other. But when you learned how these people actually talk to each other, you very often see that there are Muslims facing off other Muslims because they don't agree in the ways in which the state is organized. They will have problems regarding the use of lands, the use of water, etc. So there is a lot of questions there that have to be looked at in the small scale. When we look at the past, we can never entirely remove ourselves from the equation. Our own subjectivity forms the lens through which we see history. And as with any blind spot, it can be difficult to know what it is we are taking for granted. I think it's very easy to back project our own concerns and interests on the past and then see it through a very, perhaps what might call presentist lens, and then make judgments on the past as being either fantastic, tolerant, or the opposite, based on how we feel about issues today. So I think, you know, looking particularly at the medieval period in the Iberian Peninsula and culture in the city of Cordoba, there's a strong tendency to view it through a very nostalgic lens, which can hide some of the historical realities of the period, which was very complicated, like all historical periods are, and had a lot of different things going on, both positive and negative. And that's not to say that a lot of amazing things weren't going on in the medieval Iberian Peninsula um, under Muslim rule. But at the same time, it can, I think, get used in a variety of different ways and looked at through very rose-tinted spectacles. We'll explore more about the society of Al-Andalus in the next episode. But for the moment, let's focus on something that was important from its very birth. It will give us a sense of the geographic and cultural scale with which we're dealing. For example, Arabization. By this I mean uh, the linguistic Arabization of populations, particularly in towns, large towns, then smaller towns, and then gradually villages, because the language of administration and public life started to be Arabic. Therefore, if you wanted to deal with an official, you had to gain a smattering of Arabic. So the people who had to deal with officialdom, or indeed who wanted to make a career in officialdom, realized they needed to learn Arabic. There's also the fact that the creation of this vast Islamic, I will say world rather than empire, because there were different political powers, but the Islamic world, or what we call the Dar al-Islam, was vast, all the way from the Iberian Peninsula to Sindh, what's now Pakistan. So a huge area. And there were huge opportunities within that. You know, you could trade across that huge area. You could make massive profits. So there were reasons also to use a lingua franca, a common language. So there were, there were real incentives, sort of push factors to learning Arabic. So people did. As they learned Arabic, they adopted a more Islamic worldview on certain points. For instance, the relationship of Judaism, Christianity and Islam as religions from a common source. And so you then sort of get to a point where people start drifting over towards Islam and urban populations start converting because it doesn't seem such a stretch 
anymore. If you're like, well, these are three versions of the same religion and actually it's going to be a bit more useful for me if I'm Muslim rather than a Christian, for instance. And conversion took place primarily among the Christian community. Jews did convert, but as a community who were used to living as a minority with a distinct religion in larger societies where another religion was dominant, they seemed to have felt less need to convert. But Christians did convert in, in quite large numbers. In this episode, you've heard the voices of Yun Balke, Professor Amira Benison, Dr. Jose Cristobal Cavaja Lopez, and me, Emily Naylor. In the next episode, we'll examine in more detail just what it was like to live in Al Andalus. Professor Amira and Dr. Jose will explain some of the cultural and technological developments that made it so special and its impact so enduring. We'll learn about how society was organised in a way that appears to have enabled Muslims, Jews and Christians to live in harmony. Just how accurate is this depiction of Al-Andalus as a golden age? That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and until next time.